I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A tumultuous divorce ends with one woman's death, but is her wife the true perpetrator or just a convenient one? This is the Kara Rintala story. Afternoon, Amy. Afternoon, Megan. Now I'm starting to get tired. It's too late in the day for me. It's too late in the day for you. It's lunchtime. (laughs) She's like, if I don't eat, I'm going to be done. (laughs) Okay, so before we talk about today's case, I would like to give a special shout out to our book club members. I meant to do this on last episode we recorded, but we had such a wonderful discussion just a couple of weeks ago about the book, The Evil Within by Darren Galsworthy. Uh, For any of our listeners who might want to check it out, The Evil Within is a memoir unpacking how Darren's daughter, Becky, was murdered by her stepbrother. It's such a compounded tragedy, but the book allows us to explore the nature of this horrific crime from both a personal point of view and somewhat of an academic one. Did you read this book yet? No, because you haven't left it for me. I keep telling you to leave it in the office for me. You're right. And I haven't done that yet. Okay. Well, I'm I'm just announcing it as well because there are people who are not in the book club but have asked what the books are. So I like to I'm gonna to try to publish them. I wanna thank the listeners who participated and I look forward to our next book club meeting in April. And the book we'll be covering then is Uncultured by Daniela Mistanik. Amy, I know that you covered this case and we aired a two part episode on Daniela's case, which is Uh, Her story is fascinating, but there is so much more to take away from her book. So I think it's going to make for a wonderful discussion. And we might even have a special surprise for some of you during this book club meeting. And I'll just leave it at that for now. Now, today's case was suggested by our friend Rebecca Everett from the hit podcast Father Wants Us Dead. And it's a story that has many different topics for discussion, including the role of gender, the trial process, and more. So I thought it would make for a very interesting case for us to cover. Because there isn't much information on Kara Rintala's childhood origins, I'm going to focus on Kara's personality and the dynamic of the relationship Kara was in that led to the events we'll discuss today. 
We do know that Kara's parents, her mother, Sandy Montagna, and stepfather, Carl Montagna, describe Kara as a very cautious person who always had a plan for her life. Kara was also described as someone who was compassionate, but measured and, and kind of a quieter type, which was why it was kind of a surprise when Kara started a relationship with a woman named Anna Marie Cochran. Anna Marie was the exact opposite of Kara from all descriptions. Where Kara was reserved and, and stoic, Anna Marie was described as almost larger than life. She was gregarious. She was outspoken, funny, loved to make other people laugh. She was also from a large family and admittedly liked to be the center of attention. Anna Marie's motto in life was live, laugh, love. But alongside these qualities, Anna Marie also had what has been reported as a bad temper and an impulsivity that would become problematic in many of her interpersonal relationships and definitely in her relationship with Kara, who was seven years older than Anna Marie. But maybe this was, you know, the classic case of opposites attracting. In 2002, when the two met, both Kara and Anna Marie were working as paramedics in Western Massachusetts. And one of the things the couple did have in common was this passion they had for helping people. And this passion turned into love, with the pair eventually moving into Kara's home in Granby, Massachusetts in 2005. Two years later, in 2007, the pair married and adopted a daughter, a baby who was named Brianna. But despite the fact that this looked like a wonderful future for the couple, the two had a very tumultuous marriage. Anna Marie, remember I said she had impulsivity? Mm -hmm. She had substantial financial problems. She was an impulsive spender and had accrued thousands of dollars in credit card debt, which, and I mean, not low thousands, you know, it, it, there was ranges reporting upward of $20,000. So she was putting a financial, this was putting a financial strain on the marriage. And on top of that, there were multiple allegations of domestic violence. So, in fact, I will tell you, in 2008, Anna Marie filed for a restraining order against Kara following an alleged incident in which Anna Marie accused Kara of hitting her with a spatula. Were they separated or divorced at this point? Or No, not yet. The couple was still together at this yes, point? Yes, the couple, they were still together. But I'll tell you what happened. Kara also reported the incident to the police and gave her own version, but the police did not find Kara's version convincing, and they arrested Kara for assault. The charges were dropped, however, at Anna Marie's request. So, you know, this was dismissed. But then on May 12, 2009, 911 was called from their home, and a dispatcher heard someone saying, quote, just leave, just leave. When the police arrived, both women, I guess, tried to play it off as if though their daughter had called, which may have been true, but either way, right after this incident, Kara filed for divorce. Later that month, they both sought restraining orders against each other. Now, this time, Kara was the one complaining that Anna Marie was constantly threatening to take their daughter away and threatening to take Kara's home and her livelihood. She said that she was afraid to be in her own home. I have to tell you, Amy, neither of them were granted restraining orders. The judge who took their case was angry at both of them, stating that he had real concerns about their stability and the abusive home life that they were creating for their daughter. He made it clear that if he saw them in his courtroom again, he was going to bring his concerns to the Department of Children and Families so that they could intervene and take steps to possibly remove their daughter from the home. How old was the child? A baby at this point? She was about two years old. 
So the couple separated and they had other relationships. The most interesting one being that Anna Marie quickly met someone and moved in with her, a female police officer. But the pair also split just as quickly because Anna Marie accumulated $10,000 in debt on this woman's credit card. And she was not happy about it. And then it just seemed after that ended that Kara and Anna Marie just couldn't stay away from each other. The two reconciled only a few months after Anna Marie split from this police officer. And Anna Marie moved back in with Kara in November of 2009. The pair celebrated this reunion with a Caribbean cruise, despite the fact that they were in debt to the tune of almost $100,000. I don't know about you, but I just can't I, can't, I can't, I don't manage debt well. Like I can't live with debt. I feel compelled to pay things off very quickly. That kind of debt would cripple me. I mean, we all have debt in our life, or we have mortgages and cars, but like having credit card debt in that amount would really certainly weigh on me quite heavily. It sounds like Kara was more financially responsible. Yes, yeah, she definitely was. She was cautious. Yeah, that was probably hard for her to deal with also. Yes, it put quite a strain on their relationship. But things seemed to be going well until the evening of March 28, 2010, when Anna Marie was working a night shift. Kara sent Anna Marie a text to let her know that her friend Mike stopped by with a six-pack and they were going to hang out. Anna Marie was infuriated, writing the following in a text. It is becoming very clear how you feel about me. I don't like feeling this way. You are my wife. I hate the relationship we have. Kara responded with a text. Okay, you being over the top and crazy for no reason. It's okay. He's my friend, period. Not doing anything wrong. Anna Marie replied, you are rude. I'm going to leave. You don't give a shit. You are rude and disrespectful. Hmm. So reconciliation did not mean that these two were having a better relationship. Uh, we don't know everything, obviously, that's going on, but this doesn't sound very good or, you know, like healthy communication. That sounds like there's a lot of jealousy. Yes, I think there was definitely a lot of jealousy on, on both ends, to be honest. And what makes this particular exchange strange is that while Anna Marie was so infuriated about Kara's male friend here, Anna Marie had also developed a very close relationship with one of her male colleagues and had made plans for him to come visit her later that week while Kara was working. Mm. It did not appear that they were having a sexual relationship, but they were good enough friends that he had let Anna Marie charge thousands of dollars in merchandise on his credit cards. So again, clearly, there's a very unhealthy dynamic between Kara and Anna Marie, Amy. But despite the barrage of texts that evening, eventually they both stopped engaging and Anna Marie finished working her overnight shift. And Kara hung out with her friend. Correct. Now, the following day, March 29th, 2010, Anna Marie came home from work around 8 a.m. in the morning, but she was immediately called back by her employer and didn't come home again until around 11 a.m. And she went to sleep soon after, which I can imagine she would need after working such a long night shift. Meanwhile, Kara took their daughter, Brianna, who was two years old at the time, to run errands around 3 p.m. in an effort to make the house a little quieter so Anna Marie could sleep. What did the two do? Well, they went to the mall and a McDonald's, but oddly did not buy any food. Rather, surveillance footage found that Kara pulled her pickup truck to a garbage pail where she threw out some rags. Then they went food shopping. And while she was out running errands, Kara had sent Anna Marie some text messages checking in on her, and later in the early evening, she called her as well, but Anna Marie never responded, which didn't really seem worrisome at the time since Anna Marie might have just been sleeping really heavily. 
Kara bought food at Burger King for her daughter around 6.45 p.m. and arrived home at 7 p.m. And what she found was shocking. Anna Marie was prone and unresponsive on the basement floor. Kara reportedly rushed to their neighbor's house, begging him to call 911 just after finding Anna Marie at 7 p.m. Kara also left Brianna with the neighbor before running back to her home to try to revive Anna Marie. Remember, she's a paramedic. Mm-hmm. When the police arrived just a few minutes later, they found Kara downstairs with a deceased Anna Marie in her lap, covered in blood and what appeared to be pinkish white wet paint. Hmm. But what was most odd is that almost immediately upon law enforcement's arrival, Kara blurted out, quote, I understand I'm the number one suspect before anyone had even insinuated that this was a murder. Kara hmm. was taken in for questioning where she spoke to police without an attorney. Now, we often say that call an attorney before interviewing because the statements that you make can come back to haunt you. And they will. And they will. In this case, they certainly did. Kara explained that she took her daughter shopping so that Anna Marie could sleep and her movements were pretty much captured on surveillance cameras. So her 3 p.m. departure from the home was substantiated. No one was questioning or challenging that she left at 3 p.m. However, investigators found it very odd that Kara immediately began complaining about Anna Marie during the interview. This is her deceased wife. She said that she and Anna Marie had been fighting and that Anna Marie was abusive, lazy, manipulative, and spent way too much money. Oh, and also had a very bad temper. Hmm. That seems strange. We, we, don't, we don't know. We don't use this as evidence of guilt or innocence, but it is strange, right? Yeah. Or the police thought it was strange. When asked what she thought happened, she said she felt like they were pointing the finger at her, to which an investigator responded, quote, well, you were the one who said you had been fighting so much with Anna Marie. Kara's response, very odd as well, quote, God damn, I wish my head would fall off, mm. which investigators found odd and off-putting, but I, I don't know what it means. And I don't know if this is, you know, a woman who's simply in severe shock and distress or if it's something else. Kara eventually told detectives that she thought Anna Marie probably fell down the stairs and the fall killed her. But the police countered back, asking why Anna Marie's body was in the middle of the basement, not at the bottom of the stairs, and how and why this paint spilled all over her body. To which Kara replied, quote, I don't know. I haven't had any support. Oh, OK. <laughs> Again, an odd response. After the first interview, Kara retained an attorney and would not speak with the authorities again, which I think was in her best interest, given these bizarre statements. I'm sure her attorney wasn't pleased with the amount she said thus far. I don't think they're ever pleased with anyone speaking yeah. to the police at all. Again, that just allows those statements to be brought in later if there's going to be a trial. When Anna Marie's autopsy was concluded, the lead district attorney ruled her death a homicide by strangulation. So, not an accidental fall down the stairs. The medical examiner also noted extensive bruising all over Anna Marie's body, which we'll discuss later and can be indicative of several things. However, the investigation somewhat slowed after this announcement and Kara was not initially charged in Anna Marie's death. Some speculate that this was because the district attorney, a supporter of same-sex marriage, elected in 1993 as the state's first ever female district attorney, 
didn't want to charge a woman with the murder of her wife, but that's just speculation. And in the real world of investigating, it can take time to build a case, especially when there's not much forensic evidence to go on. So while it's interesting, the press, you know, it's reported that it's slowed down. I don't really think it was that slow because I'll tell you, Karen, her daughter, moved to Rhode Island following Anna Marie's death. But it was about a year and a half later in 2011 when a new male district attorney was elected and Kara was charged with murder. So I don't think that is really that slow. It does seem like that's a long time considering that we don't know what other evidence they had, but it doesn't seem like there's any evidence to suggest that there was a break in or I'm not suggesting that Kara should have been looked at, but closest person to the victim, last person to see her alive. Um, it, it just They're seems fighting. Like, they have a history of domestic violence. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a long time for them to to gather evidence. OK, well, you know, let's see if you change your opinion later. OK, okay. so Kara was arrested and she was held without bail until February 2013. When her trial began, the case became a media sensation because it was the first case in the state where a woman was charged with killing her wife. So this garnered a lot of attention. The prosecution's opening laid out a tumultuous, violent, jealous relationship that ended when Kara snapped and killed Anna Marie. But what was their evidence? Now, of course, we know that there were many indicators that Kara and Anna Marie had a turbulent marriage. But that's not necessarily and immediately indicative of murder. Lots of couples have difficult relationships and challenges, but who don't kill each other. But what the prosecution did have was physical evidence. I'm dying to know what kind of physical evidence did the prosecution have? Good question. First, if you recall, they had the surveillance tape showing Kara dumping some trash behind the McDonald's the day that Anna Marie was killed. Now, in itself... That's not necessarily leading to... Well, they pulled the trash. Exactly. So they pulled the trash and it led to the recovery of a gray rag which contained Anna Marie's blood on it. Now, I don't believe it was a lot of blood, just to be clear, but that doesn't look very good for Kara. Why is she dumping a rag with Anna Marie's blood on a McDonald's? And well, why did the first prosecutor ignore that evidence? The prosecutor may have ignored it, but Hold that thought because there is there's debate over this evidence. Um, So hold that thought. okay? surveillance from that day also showed that Kara had a laundry basket and a red bag in the back of her pickup truck when she was running errands. But that bag and basket disappeared and were never recovered. So what was in it and why did it disappear? Why wasn't it back at the house when it's there when she leaves? It's not there when she comes Mm -hmm. back. Okay, that's not necessarily indicative of guilt per se. But they also had the medical examiner who testified that the time of death was between 12 and 2. And by Kara's own account, she was home until 3 o'clock. So that puts Kara Mm. in the home with Anna Marie. That's pretty strong evidence. That's pretty good. I mean, that's pretty strong evidence. The paint was also crucial, Amy, because it was the prosecution's theory that Kara spilled the paint all over Anna Marie to try to contaminate the physical evidence they would find on her. Does paint cover physical? I mean, does it destroy evidence? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, we've heard of people trying to clean scenes using bleach and other types mm-hmm. of products. I think maybe they thought the paint would hide, you know, the, the true story or somehow throw them off. Couldn't the paint have been used as a weapon? Like the paint can thrown like during an argument? So it could have been. There were no indicators that it was, though. There was no, you know, gotcha. like you, there okay. was no injury to the body yeah, that was indicative that she uh-huh. was hit with it. It's a fair question, though. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was supposed to be indicative of like some violent struggle, but 
all the placement of it was odd and the way it was just poured like over her body was odd. And also what was really key about the paint was it was ceiling paint. And I don't know if you know much about ceiling paint, but it was like this paint was pink when applied, but would turn white within an hour. Now, why is this key at trial? Because first responders testified that the paint was pink when they arrived, meaning it must have just been spilled or recently spilled. Interesting. That's very interesting. And if Anna Marie was killed hours earlier, who besides Kara could have spilled paint all over the crime scene? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's, it's interesting. I think it was a seemingly strong case. But let me tell you, the defense was able to produce a ton of reasonable doubt. Before you get into what the defense says about the evidence, what's their main narrative is that she just had nothing to do with it. 100% innocent. Oh, you mean Kara's defense? Yeah, absolutely. 100% okay. innocence. Gotcha. And it doesn't seem good, but let me tell you what the defense countered with or what they presented. They had a DNA expert who explained that the blood on that rag was degraded to such a degree that it was much older likely much older than the date of Anna Marie's murder. So while her blood was on that rag, it didn't necessarily indicate a crime and it didn't necessarily indicate a crime happened that day. The sample was degraded. So I think that that did hurt the prosecution's case. They also called their own expert to dispute the time of death, giving testimony that Anna Marie could have been killed after 3 p.m. and that it would be very hard to pinpoint the exact time of death. I think that there was some issue they took with First responders didn't assess rigor mortis at the time. So I think that was part of the issue with time of death. The defense pointed to other suspects who should have been investigated more thoroughly, including that male coworker with whom Anna Marie had grown so close, but to whom she owed money and had somewhat of a suspicious relationship with. So they're saying, hey, you know, there was tunnel vision on this case. They called other witnesses who said that Kara was happy about the reconciliation and that she and Anna Marie were planning to renew their vows. So even though there had been turbulence in the relationship, they were happy and they were going to marry again. And they also pointed to the fact that there was no forensic evidence connecting Kara to the crime. But what would the jury think? I, I think I know the answer to this, Megan, but Kara didn't take the stand. Kara did not take the stand. Okay, so it sounds like there's it's a battle of the experts. It does come down to somewhat a battle of the experts, yeah. And in the end, the defense was successful in creating reasonable doubt because the jury could not unanimously decide and it was deemed a mistrial. Jurors later said that they just didn't think the prosecution proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Sorry, you said it's a mistrial, though. So they didn't find they didn't acquit. No, it was a hung jury. Correct. It was a hung jury. Okay, so that means the state could try Kara again, would they? Well, of course they would. This case was a media blowout and it was too high profile to let it go. So Kara had a second trial with mostly the same testimony and evidence, but of course, a different jury. So what would happen at this trial, at trial number two? Well, just like with the first jury, the second round was also declared a mistrial with a hung jury again. Interesting. Please tell me they don't try a third time. You might think she was in the clear at this point, but the state announced <laughs> yeah. it would try Kara for a third time, which is perfectly legal. And this time, Amy, they had a new expert. It almost seems unfair if you think about it. <laughs> it's a point okay. that I wrote at the end. When we, our point of okay. discussion is, do we, I'll get to it, but do we think this is, you know, even maybe somewhat of an abuse of the system? We can, we can get to that, though, at the end. Kara's third trial took place in 2016. So we're now six years past Anna Marie's murder, okay? And this time, the state called a quality engineer from the manufacturing company who produced the ceiling paint. Remember that paint found at the crime scene? Okay. Mm -hmm. He testified that he performed experiments on the paint and that the paint at the crime scene had been, first of all, poured 
not spilled. So that shows some deliberation. And that the pour had occurred not long before Anna Marie's body was found. It happened very close in proximity. I think he had testified something like 30 minutes. That still doesn't prove that Kara poured the paint or murdered Anna Marie. Yes. It, well, it would prove that if Anna Marie was murdered and it was several hours before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would negate the timeline. The offender would not come back and pour the paints. You know, that would be highly unlikely. So if she was murdered hours before, but the paint was poured just when, you know, kind of Kara came home, that doesn't look good. I mean, if Kara, Kara's defense could also say she spilled the paint by accident after she found her murdered. They could have, but they didn't. So I don't think it would have been a strong defense, but no, legally speaking, right, the issue isn't who poured the paint. I mean, it's not the issue, but it is an issue that is definitely yeah. part of this puzzle here. Uh, who poured the paint and why? Okay. Well, the jury considered this new testimony and the other testimony, which remained pretty much the same. But this time, Amy, the jury voted unanimously that Kara was guilty of murder. You think it was that new testimony? I mean, it's a new jury, so you have new people and you have this new expert. Yeah. Kara was subsequently sentenced to life in prison. But that's not the end of this story. Because Kara's defense team appealed on two primary grounds. First, they asserted that the time of death testimony should not have been allowed because no one at the scene examined Anna Marie's body for rigor mortis. Remember I said this before, or stiffening of the body. And so time of death could not be accurately established. They also appealed on the ground that the paint expert's testimony was not allowable or should not have been because it was not scientific and rather it was just an opinion. Specifically, the engineer who conducted these experiments or, you know, experiments in quotes, he had never conducted these type of experiments before. He didn't simulate the same conditions. So he didn't use the temperature, the same surfaces, account for disturbances to the paint by first responders. And he did not have the education or experience that qualified him to be an expert witness to provide this testimony. You know, we've talked about this a lot when we talk about what does it mean to conduct an experiment? Well, you have to recreate the same conditions and test these phenomena over and over again and find results. That's the way to do it. It's not just about, you know, kind of simulating sort of some of the circumstances. It has to be almost exact. And on this point, the appellate court agreed. They found that it was an error to admit this testimony and a prejudicial one. So after serving five years in prison following her 2016 conviction, Kara was freed in 2021. She is now residing in Narragansett, Rhode Island with her parents and her daughter. While, get this, Amy, she's awaiting her fourth trial. They're trying her again? They are trying her again. I think it's clear that if you have two mistrials, you bring in this other evidence. That evidence is deemed inadmissible. Like, why? Like, enough already. You don't have the case. Well, I guess the prosecution disagrees. So fourth trial. So how much time Kara Rintala has as a free citizen remains to be seen at this point. Now that we're up to date, though, on the status of the case, I want to discuss the why part of this crime and whether or not you believe, you know, Kara committed it and also the criminal justice system, because this is where that trial process comes into place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a clear case involving domestic violence in various ways in the relationship, ranging from emotional and economic abuse to physical abuse. I can't say that it's the most shocking event to learn that this violence escalated to murder because, you know, when there is domestic violence in a relationship, that's a very real possibility. 
I believe, I'm going to just tell you, I believe Kara committed this crime. I do, though I'm not certain of it. And we'll get to the criminal justice aspect of it next. But I think that the years of strain on this relationship culminated and the fighting became too much for Kara in the moment. So I don't think this was like anything planned. I think it was spontaneous. I think the two probably got into a physical altercation, uh, maybe not even precipitated necessarily by Kara, but it wound up in Kara, I think, snapping to some degree. Remember that aside from the strangulation, the medical examiner also found a ton of bruises on her body, on Enemer's body. They tell a story, or at least the prosecution says they tell a story of someone who was being pushed, grabbed, or force was being applied in other ways. What was the size difference? Anna Marie was much bigger than Kara. I don't know if she was taller, but she was, you know, she weighed more than Kara for sure. Kara, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, is quite thin. I mean, the speculation is that these bruises indicate Kara was trying to force her down the stairs, which may or may not been true. You know, Kara was at the bottom of the stairs. She may have fallen down those stairs, and that's why the bruises, you know, that that could be the bruising. I think that the years, the strain of the fighting and the years of doing so caused Kara to commit this crime, seemingly because she really didn't know how to healthily cope. And violence was the response to strain in, in their relationship, unfortunately. Whether she strangled Anna Marie to keep her quiet about this incident or because she was so angry with her, I could not say. What What do you think, Amy? Yeah, I from the circumstantial evidence, it seems like Kara is the likely suspect, but just because someone does something does not mean that they can be found guilty in the court of law. It seems that there's just too much reasonable doubt. The prosecution, from what I see, that they do not have the evidence to convict Kara. And without the evidence to convict, you can convict someone. Again, that doesn't mean I think that she's innocent of the crime. Okay. Yeah. Do you think gender played a role in her lack of convictions or, you know, do you think gender played a role in this case in terms of the criminal justice process? Oh, for sure. If Kara was a man, I don't think there would be much question of the culpability. Yeah. It also seems like politics played a bit of a role here. If we look at who the prosecutor was and I think valuable time could have been lost by not prosecuting the case sooner. I wonder how much evidence maybe existed that they didn't get. Or, you know, I don't know. Maybe they could have... I don't know what evidence they had. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like they had a very strong case, but it also doesn't I, sound like they pushed very hard. Do you also think that gender played a role in terms of those restraining orders? Remember the judge denied it and kind of scolded them. Do you think maybe it would have been different if they weren't a same-sex couple and female? Yeah, I think there's too much leniency when it comes to protection orders for females because there's probably this false assumption that, you know, they can't do much harm. They're women. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think so okay. as well. I mean, I, the question here, right, is, you know, there's a question of factual guilt and then there, there's a question of legal guilt. So factually and actually, I think Kara probably committed the crime. But mm-hmm. legal guilt is what can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And so I think for me, the jurors were likely responsible and understood the instruction. They had doubts and therefore they couldn't all agree to convict. I believe that gender definitely played a role, uh, not consciously, though, of course. But that's their job, right? And I might have done mm-hmm. the same thing if I was on that jury. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean justice is served? The other question that we want to address here is how many trials is enough? The prosecution can try a case as many times as they want if it's a mistrial. But does that mean they should? Do you remember the case? I'm going to reference the case Curtis Flowers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That was Into the Dark. Is that yep. what it podcast? What was the podcast? Into that's the correct. Dark. Into yep. the Dark. Curtis Flowers was tried six times for murder in Mississippi between the years 1997 and 2010, which means 
he was essentially on trial for about 13 years. How could you say innocent until proven guilty if you're going to subject someone to that much time? <laughs> it, it really, that, that's one of the most shocking cases. He won several appeals, but after his conviction in 2010, he was sentenced to death and sent to death row to await his sentence. His jury deliberated for 30 minutes before finding him guilty. Curtis appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, who overturned his conviction due to overwhelming evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. And the state announced it would not try Curtis Flowers again after he served nine years in prison and endured six trials. And so I simply ask, when is it enough? Is this an abuse of the process? Is it a is it humane? Are you in favor of limitations? I mean, it's also a waste of resources. It costs a lot of money. A lot of resources go into trials. It's almost as if the prosecutor, they're just going to keep trying until they get what they want. But clearly, if you don't, I I think in the absence of new evidence that suggests guilt, they should not be allowed to just keep retrying cases. I think they should have a hearing with in front of a judge who the judge will decide, is there new evidence that would potentially tell a different story? You can't just keep telling the same story to a jury and just hope that this jury gets it. Yeah, I would have to agree. But on the opposite side, just to play devil's advocate for Anna Marie's family, they want to see justice for their loved one. Yep. And if Kara is really guilty, justice would be Kara being found guilty of a crime. I know. It's so hard when you... Yeah. It's so hard to weigh... Anytime you're... Any of these cases, it's so hard to weigh the needs of the victim with, you know, due process, public safety, victim needs. There's so much... That has to be weighed here. It it creates quite the conundrum because everyone agrees that there needs to be justice. Somebody murdered this woman. Yeah. And that person should be brought to justice. But unfortunately, the way our system works is there is a legal burden that has to be met. Yeah, I agree. I can say in this case, in Kara's case, I hope that the fourth is the last trial conducted properly and with a finding that is based on all proper criminal procedure. Um, No matter what the conclusion, we will be sure to keep you updated on this case. So thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an article from Boston Magazine, The Commonwealth v. Rintala, several articles from MassLive.com, The Daily Hampshire Gazette, and an episode of Dateline. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.